ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Specific, spontaneous speaking situations like giving feedback, answering a question, persuading, introducing people. You hate being put on the spot and you're not alone. Yet I believe these circumstances are ones of opportunity, opportunities for collaboration, connection, for learning. This is Matt Abrahams, and he's got a new book out, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. I am a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where I teach strategic communication, and I host the podcast Think Fast, Talk Smart for the Business School. And I'm Lisa Leong, and on this episode of This Working Life, you're going to learn how to handle being put on the spot and how to speak in a compelling and calm way at work, no matter what's thrown at you and when. Either we're not expecting it or we don't have at our fingertips or on our tongues exactly what we want to say. Now, Matt, if you were an onion and I peeled back the first three layers, what would I find? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so uh, that was an interview question I got for a job I really, really wanted. The the CEO of this company, I come to the room, he's already there, which is totally unheard of. Usually I, I would be sitting waiting for the executives to come in. This was the final round. He looks at me, looks at my resume, says nothing else, looks up at me and says, if you were an onion and I peeled back to the third layer, what would I find? And I totally panicked. I was not expecting this at all. It is quite a shocking question in a way, isn't it? It's so unexpected in so many different ways. And most of the time, yes, you'd pause. So what did you do, Matt? So I, I took a deep breath. I paused. And and I, I the only thing that came to my mind in that moment is, and this is still true to this day, when I peel onions, I cry. I just tear up. And so I said that, and as soon as I said that, I thought, uh-oh, now what am I going to do? And, and I ended up turning it into a conversation about how I think it's important at work to bring your whole self. And, and we have to bring our whole self in terms of emotions and convictions. And I talked about how the people I work with and, and search to hire, because I was in a, a hiring position and this job had that as well, people who are, who are passionate and, and have conviction. And sometimes that means tears. Sometimes that means raised voices. And he loved it. It, it was not what he was expecting either. So he gave me something I wasn't <laughs> expecting. I gave him back something he wasn't expecting. And we ended up having a wonderful conversation. We've been good friends ever since. And I got the job as soon as I walked out of that interview. But man, was my heart beating when he said that. So let's go to that moment when the question was asked, your heart was beating. What is the problem that you've noticed and wanted to solve? So for many of us, we find ourselves in situations where we're put on the spot, where we're either we're not expecting it or we don't have at our fingertips or on our tongues exactly what we want to say. And that's a problem that happens a lot. You know, if any learning of communication happens, it's usually in planned settings where you think about a presentation, a pitch, a meeting you're running. But most of our communication in our personal and professional lives is spontaneous. It happens in the moment. And so this is an issue that I have been fascinated by for a long time. You know, with a last name being Abrahams, A-B, through my entire elementary school and middle school and everything, I was always called on first. So my whole <laughs> life has been speaking in the moment. And yet I, I know for myself and for others, it can be very challenging. 
And in that interview setting, uh, which is the perfect setting because it's a pressure situation, what was the normal response, do you think, to a question, a curly question like the onion question, Matt? I think for most people it would have been, uh, and then some some kind of trite response. Well, you would see that I'm uh, amazingly transparent or I'm, <laughs> I, or actually, no, the, the best answer that people give, which I think is just awful, is I, I, if you peeled back the third layer of the onion, you would find that I work too hard. I'm oh. just too committed to my work, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of people default to. You know, in my research, I talk a lot about heuristics. Heuristics are these default responses that we use that help us navigate navigate sticky situations. And in some cases, they work really well. But in other cases, they actually lock us in to a way of thinking and a way of expressing ourselves that actually misses the mark. So imagine you and I are talking and you tell me about some awful experience you had. And my heuristic is when somebody tells me something bad, it's awkward, I know I have to respond, I simply say, it is what it is. It fulfills the obligation to respond, but in many ways, that's meaningless. And it doesn't give me an opportunity to really connect and demonstrate empathy, compassion, and concern. So these heuristics often get in the way of us communicating effectively and responding in a way that benefits ourselves and the people we're talking to. I think people might say, actually, this is something that you're either born with or you're not born with. And I'm just not born to be spontaneous and to think on my feet. What's your response to that, Matt? I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, I have seen it in my own life, in the people I teach, in the people I coach, and the people who listen to the podcast I host. You can develop these skills. Now, certainly some people have been doing it longer or based on their personal nature and personality. They are willing to, to take risks more and have had benefits of doing that. But everybody can get better at communicating, period, but especially spontaneous speaking. And I've developed a methodology, and it's one I've tested for almost 10 years now that helps people to feel more comfortable and confident in those moments of uncertainty and spontaneity. Let's go through this methodology, and it's not that you need to change your surname to start with an A or a B, is it? (laughs) (laughs) It is not the case. No, no, no. You do not have to be up here with uh, those of us who who come first in the alphabet. No. So the methodology has six steps. The first four steps are related to mindset. There's a lot we have to do mentally to uh, prepare for this and have an approach that works. And then the last two steps are around messaging. So the mindset steps are really first dealing with anxiety. As as we've alluded to, these situations are pressure-packed and anxiety looms large. And then we have to look at these circumstances a little differently. Many of us in our communication in general, but especially when put on the spot, we want to respond in the perfect right way. And that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on us. And the reality is there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but there is no one right way. So we have to flip that switch and understand that. And then the latter two categories, the last two have to do with messaging. First, we have to structure our messages. We do not do well when people ramble at us. We have to have a structure that's logical and connected. And then finally, we have to be concise and clear. Many of us in spontaneous speaking situations are discovering what we're saying as we're saying it, and we tend to go on and on and on. My mother has this wonderful saying, I know she didn't create it, but it's tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And many of us in spontaneous speaking, we become clock builders. And all we have to do is respond with what's needed and just tell the time. So that six-step methodology has been proven to help people who are experienced as well as those who are nervous and unexperienced to get better. 
Let's go deeper on some of these. So calm is the first element. And I love you how you talk about the ABCs of speaking anxiety. Can you talk us through these? So uh, when we look at speaking anxiety, which is pervasive, up to 85% of people report feeling anxious in high-stakes communication situations. And quite frankly, I think the other 15% are lying. <laughs> I think we could create a situation that makes them nervous too. But we can categorize the responses that we have to anxiety. So it's the ABCs. A stands for affect. That's the emotion. B is behavioral. That's the shakiness and the sweating. And then the, the C has to do with cognitive. That's all the judgments and evaluation. So when people get nervous, they experience different degrees and different types of uh, symptoms. So I, I'd be curious for you, what happens for you when you get nervous in front of people? For me, I blush and I perspire. Those are the first two things. What happens for you? I can feel my heart beating in my chest and I definitely get the clammy hands as well. Yes. So those are both behavioral clues. Mm. And they're things that we to mitigate all of these. It's all about managing anxiety. I don't think you can ever truly overcome your anxiety around speaking, nor do you want to. It actually helps you focus. It gives you energy, but you want to manage it so it doesn't manage you. So I'll give you just two or three quick things you can do, quick hacks, if you will. Number one, deep breathing. If you take some deep belly breaths, like if you've ever done yoga or Tai Chi or Qigong, those deep belly breaths, you only have to do two or three of them and it, and it can really make a difference. It calms down your autonomic nervous system. The key to deep breathing is that your exhalation should be twice as long as your inhalation. So really focus on the exhale. For those of us who sweat and perspire like I do, holding something cold in the palm of your hand can cool you down. When you get nervous, you actually heat up. You're pumping more blood through tighter tubes. We tense up. The palms of your hand are thermoregulators for your body. As if, on a cold morning, if you've ever held a warm cup of tea or coffee and you feel it warms you up, we're just doing it in reverse. So there are things you can do to mitigate all the ABCs. And we've just talked about a few. And then cognitively, one of the hacks um, that I do is to think of it or reframe it as excitement <laughs> rather than nerves, or I call it being nerve-sighted. I love that nerve-sightment. That's great. So you're referring to some research that a, a friend of mine, Alison Woodbrooks at the Harvard Business School did about how we can reframe the physiological symptoms that we experience as excitement. And, and you, that little mental shift can make us feel better and it actually improves our performance as well. My hack that I use for when I get in my head, I say a lot of negative things to myself. I'll say things like, oh, you're going to make a mistake or you should have prepared more or gosh, Lisa is so much better at speaking than you are. And what I remind myself to cancel that out is I have a positive affirmation I use. I simply say, I have value to bring. Most of the time when we communicate, people have asked us to communicate or they're asking us questions or asking us for feedback. They want to hear from us. And if I remind myself that I have value to bring here, that makes me audience focused. So I'm turning the spotlight away from me and onto the audience. And it helps excite me to communicate rather than the dread that I might feel. So I love your excitement reframe. And I think the positive affirmation can help as well. Let's go to number two, unlock. Explain analysis paralysis. Yes. Yeah, so 
many of us want to do our communication right. We have this performance mindset. So, you know, if you have ever done any acting, singing, or played a sport, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And we take that mentality into our everyday communication. And we watch people like these amazing TED Talk speakers or these executives and and all these, these actors and actresses, and we hold up that as perfect speaking. The reality is those folks are heavily coached and in some cases heavily edited. We're using the wrong criteria to see what good communication is. Joan London, the news anchor, I interviewed her for the book and she she summarized it beautifully. She said, the true essence of communication is you want to strive for connection, not perfection. And so when we get locked into this performance mindset, it means we're constantly evaluating and judging everything we're doing against some way we've decided is the right way to do it. And what we need to do is turn that volume down and just focus on doing what needs to be done. And that reduces the cognitive burden we put on ourselves to do it right. So analysis paralysis simply refers to the fact that we're constantly analyzing what we're saying and how we're doing so much so that we have less bandwidth to actually do what we're doing well. And you said uh, in your book to maximize our mediocrity, which made me laugh. Yes. Yes. So it made you laugh. You should. So the, uh, the very first day of my strategic communication class with all of these Stanford MBA students, super bright students, the very first thing we talk about, I say maximize mediocrity. And they don't laugh. Their jaws literally drop. Oh, I mean, perfect. they have never been told to be mediocre. I mean, mm. that's that's totally anathema to who they are. But I explained to them what I just explained to you, that that by striving to do it right and be great, you actually reduce the likelihood that you will. And after we go through some activities and ex- exercises, they they understand why, where at the end of the class, I end the class by coming back to the same quote. I say, maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. And they understand that getting out of their own way allows them to do really, really well. Let's go now to, it's such a great topic. It is the topic of small talk. And when we talk about small talk, networking, I think people's eyeballs kind of sweat in horror. (laughs) I love thinking about eyeballs sweating. I think that's a really interesting (laughs) idea. Okay. I got the visual. Thank you. So why do you think small talk matters, Matt? Well, so first and foremost, small talk has a bad rap. I am on a mission to Mm. rebrand small talk. (laughs) Big things happen during small talk. We get exposure to new ideas. We connect with new people. We learn about ourselves. Lots of good stuff can happen in small talk. But many of us fear it because... We don't know what's going to happen. We we don't know if if others are going to like what we say. We feel very self-conscious. So I have a few simple rules for small talk that I think can make a big difference. Uh, first and foremost, in on my podcast, I interviewed this fascinating person. Her name's Rachel Greenwald. She is both a professional matchmaker and an academic. And she does a lot about with how people get together and come together and interact. And she says in small talk, it is about being interested interested, not interesting. And I think that's a really powerful way to approach this. It is not about trying to position yourself to be some amazing, interesting person. The pressure is not to be somebody you're not or to put only on a a positive face. In fact, the single best thing you can do to keep small talk going is just ask questions, to be curious, be interested. So First thing is that. And the second thing is reframe how you see it. Many of us see small talk as like a tennis match or pickleball or volleyball where we just have to send something over the net and we want it to score. We want it to land. We want it to be really impressive. 
when in fact, but there's a game you play with a beanbag. It's called Hacky Sack, where the goal is just to kick the ball back and forth and just keep it off the ground. And success comes from helping the other person you pass the ball to keep it off the ground. That's the better analogy. So when we are having small talk, my goal is to set you up for something good that you can say so that you can then set me up for something good that I can say. And that makes it a lot better. So if we get out of our own way, we see it as being interested instead of interesting. And we know that our job is to help the other person look good. It makes it so much easier and more enjoyable. And why is it possibly better to support rather than shift? So uh, academics who study this, there are two different types of responses in general you can have in a conversation. One is a supporting response. That is where you encourage the other person to continue on the path of conversation they're on. And then there's a shifting response where you turn it to something else. And the goal is not one over the other completely. If, if all I do is support. So let's imagine you and I are talking and you tell me about a lovely vacation you took, a holiday you took. And I come in and I say, oh, I just took a holiday too. I just shifted the the conversation from your holiday to my holiday. But if I said, oh, where'd you go and what did you do? Then I'm supporting your conversation. In supporting, it feels really good. It validates it. It gives you an opportunity to share more. But if all I do is support and no shifting, then it seems like I'm trying to hide. I'm trying to not share anything about myself. So the, the advice of researchers who study this is you want about two thirds or three quarters of your responses to be supporting in one third to a quarter to be shifting. That feels about right. So in those conversations, be thinking about how do I support? What can I ask this person to continue the conversation they have started or the path we're on? And then when it feels like it's run out of steam a little bit, then you can do a shifting response to move to another path that you can then support. Let's go to the workplace context, particularly when you're making small talk with your manager, your leader, or your boss. It's often super awkward. Uh, What are your tips for how to manage that? Yeah, so when there are power and status differences in our communication, it's really challenging for us to to sort of bridge it. I am a a big fan of using questions and uh, inviting collaboration in the conversation. So uh, rather than asserting a point of view, which might feel really awkward, I I might say, hey, I noticed in that meeting, uh, in our most recent meeting, you brought up this notion of uh, how we can become more efficient in this process. I'm curious to learn a little bit more. And then so I ask a question and then I can give some feedback in there. So I get curious and I use questions to sort of bridge that, that gap we have. Okay, listening now. Now, this is really interesting because when we talk about listening, usually we focus on a particular category of listening, but you actually um, set out some common ways that our listening is impeded. Can you go through those? Yes. So so I, I identify the three Ps that are barriers to our effective listening. So, and these are just three concepts all that happen to start with the letter P. So there's physical. Physical is, in a, we're in an environment that's just noisy. It's hard to tell. As I get older, all these environments get noisy and it's hard for me to hear. So we want to make sure that we avoid those. There is physiological noise. What's going on in our body? If we're nervous, if we're hungry, if we're hangry, if we're tired, these get in the way of listening well. And then there's psychological noise. All of our judging and evaluating that we talked about earlier, that can also get in the way of effective listening. So the three Ps are things that we need to be aware of and understand that we need to minimize their impact in our situation so we can listen better. 
I think we often ignore the physiological in this. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm either hungry or <laughs> tired. I might not be listening as well at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so everybody tuning in who's a parent, we tend to be really good at this with our kids, mm. but not with ourselves. Like if our kid is acting up and not, not being compliant with something we're asking, we're like, oh, they're just tired or they're hungry. But when we look at our own behavior, we don't, we don't make that attribution. We don't realize, hey, we're tired and hungry and that's why we're not listening well. So yeah, I, I agree. We don't do well with ourselves, but I think in others, we can notice it. And finally, let's look at structure and focus, the final two categories when it comes to actually uh, forming our spontaneous communication. Let's go deeper on these two elements. Absolutely. So mindset is critically important to get you in the right place to respond spontaneously. But what really helps is having some structures that you can rely on. A structure to me is a logical connection of information. It is how we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Most of us in spontaneous situations, we just ramble or list. Our brains are not wired for rambling and listing. They're actually wired for logical connections of ideas. So what do I mean by a structure? If you have ever pitched an idea or tried to persuade somebody or watched an advertisement, you have seen a very popular structure, problem, solution, benefit. You start by identifying what's the problem, what's the challenge. You then talk about how you resolve it. That's the solution. And then what's the benefit of invoking that solution? It's a logical story that people can understand. It packages it up in a way that helps people to to really digest it and remember it. And for us as the communicator, it helps us prioritize what we're saying and connect our ideas. So it's a really powerful thing to have a structure. And there are myriad structures that people can use. Specific spontaneous speaking situations like giving feedback, answering a question, persuading, introducing people. And each one of them has a structure that you can leverage. So if we can train ourselves to use a structure, which is nothing more than a recipe, it helps reduce the burden we have when we communicate. Because when I communicate, I have to focus on what to say and how to say it. The structure tells me how I'm going to say it. So now all I have to think about is what are those ingredients that go into the recipe? And that makes life easier. Now the challenge is though, we have to be very focused. Mm. People ramble, people aren't clear. So their audience is left trying to figure out what's important here. So if you can focus your message, part of focus is just structure. But the other thing is to really think about relevance, what's important to my audience and put that as a primary thing that you discuss. Remove jargon and acronyms and unnecessary language that gets in the way of us being clear. So there's a lot that we can do to prioritize what we say and how we say it so we can be clearer for our audiences. And if I had to pick one useful uh, framework to help people structure their spontaneous communications, it's probably the what, so what, now what? Can you uh, go deeper on this one? Thank you so much. It is my favorite topic to talk about. Of all the structures, I call this one the Swiss army knife of structures. It allows you to do so many things. So let me define it and then let me share some situations you can use it. So it is three simple questions. What? So what? Now what? What is the information? It could be your product, your service, your position that you have on a topic. The 
So what is, why is it important and relevant to the person or people you're talking to? And then the now what is what comes next? Maybe it's another appointment. Maybe it's I'm taking your questions. Maybe it's I'm doing a demonstration. These three simple questions set you up for so much success in so many situations. Imagine feedback. You and I come out of a meeting and you say, Matt, how do you think that meeting went? I can give you feedback in this structure. I might say, I thought the meeting went well, but when you were talking about the implementation plan, you went a little quickly and you didn't give as many examples. That's my what. When you speak quickly without a lot of examples, people think you might not be as prepared. That's my so what. Next time, I'd like you to slow down and I'd like for you to include example X and example Y in your communication. That's the now what. So I was able very quickly to give you concise feedback. So we can use this structure all over the place to help our communication. And now I just want to get a little meta with you for a second. I actually answered your question using what, so what, now what. I told you what it was, why it's important, and how you can use it. So you can use it to even answer questions. Oh, you just blew my mind. I love that. (laughs) Did I make your eyes sweat, though? (laughs) Thanks to my guest, Matt Abrahams. Thanks also to sound engineer Tim James and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.